This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, filling in for your usual host, Mr. Joel Hilliker. And with me is our panel. Here in the studio in Edmond, Oklahoma, is Andrew Miller. Hello. And Joshua Taylor. Hi. And from our office in the UK is Mr. Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And Mihailo Zekic. Hello. Well, we are heading into the July 4th weekend here in the United States, celebrating 246 years of American independence. But it is a time of crippling political dysfunction in the country and extreme radicalization. And all of that was intensified by the Supreme Court giving a major win to life with a ruling announced just at the end of last week that overturned Roe versus Wade. To tell us about this, we'll go to Andrew Miller. Yeah, huge week in the United States. Many conservatives thought this day would uh, never come, uh, even even the ones that were uh, hopeful that when they appointed conservative justices like Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch and Amy Coney Barrett, uh, we're still fairly pessimistic at the chances, but Roe v. Wade was finally overturned. It was actually overturned not this week, but last Friday. Uh, uh, we found out about it while we were recording this program, uh, and I almost thought about saying something, but it was—it is too big of a story uh, to cover on on such short notice like that. So we we figured we'd give it top billing this week. Uh, now. Uh, a few people knew this was a few people knew this was coming because, as we've covered on this program before, there was a leaked draft uh, of Samuel Alito's uh, uh, majority statement, which actually turned out to be a, a little bit of a mixed blessing for conservatives because uh, the uh, the liberal press really tried to tear apart that draft, and then Alito <laughs> made some changes before the final one, just to, to plug a few of the logical holes, uh, making sure he has the most airtight case as possible. Um, though it was pretty straightforward. The original Roe v. Wade decision that was passed in 1973 said that the, um, the due process clause of the 14th Amendment says that no citizen shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And so they basically, ru <laughs> they basically ruled privacy is a right, uh, it's a right, it's a liberty, and therefore the state getting involved in an abortion is a violation of that privacy, therefore abortion's legal. Uh, some mental gymnastics there. Hmm. But um, <clears throat> uh, Alito came out, and uh, I don't even know if he hit this point much, but he says, okay, well, there's several things wrong with that. One, uh, the uh, a child, a woman's right to privacy doesn't supersede a child's right to life. Babies have constitutional rights to life, too. Right. Um, two, any right that's not specifically delegated to the federal government is, by definition, via the Tenth Amendment, reserved for the states. Uh, and three, he said, for the federal government to, like, protect a right against the states, like I said, it either has to be enumerated in the Constitution, which abortion isn't, or there has to be a long, deeply rooted cultural tradition to say that's a protected right. And he said, so the fact that abortion laws against state laws against abortion have existed from the time 
the pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock until the day Roe v. Wade was decided. And so there is no deep-rooted tradition of abortion. It was always, always constitutional. And the idea that the right to abortion is um, a constitutional right was always a big lie. And so finally, you got some justices with the, with the courage to, um, <laughs> to say what's been an open secret in Washington for years and, uh, and overturn it. The riots actually haven't been as bad as I thought they might be. Also, possibly due to the leak, because I think they got some of the pent-out rage out of their system earlier this year. Uh, though still, there have definitely still been pro, um, uh, pro-life pro clinics, firebombed, uh, death threats to conservatives, uh, windows smashed, buildings looted. So, I mean, the, the, the left is livid at this. And, and some uh, some conservative outlets, I think uh, David Horowitz's uh, Freedom Centers even kind of called this like America's Fort Sumter moment, Fort Sumter being the uh, the battle that started the first American Civil War, saying that basically uh, the the uh, the conservatives and the liberals, they're almost in a, they've been at Cold War for a long time, but they're they're on the verge of, of hot war over this over this issue. So we had a we had an announcement yesterday from President Biden saying that he would actually support changing the Senate's filibuster rules to make an exception for any legislation that ensures um, access to abortion. What, what's your view of that? Could that end up passing laws that codify abortion? I don't think that would be those would be constitutional laws. From what I said about that Tenth Amendment reserving rights not specifically delegated to the federal government to the states. Uh, legally, this should be have to be done on the state level. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if the uh, the Democrats in Congress tried to uh, ignore those legal laws and pass a federal law to do abortion. And, and if they did that, the Supreme Court would have to rule on the case right. again to determine if the, if that law would be would be legal or not. But that is kind of the Democrats' next recourse is that the <laughs> the Supreme Court's basically justly told them that you can't rely on judicial activism to pass a law that the elected representatives of the people won't. Right. So now they're saying, well, well, maybe we can get the elected representatives of the people at the federal level to pass that law. Uh, although that would be pretty, pretty contentious from a state's rights issue. Yeah. Well, this, uh, you know, as you said, this is just a landmark ruling, obviously, and, and uh, the leftists are just seething with rage over it. Um, but this was likely not the last ruling that the Supreme Court will make that, that, you know, is going to infuriate them. What can you tell us about some of the others that could have, you know, implications for being changed? Yeah, the Supreme Court's been on a, they've been on a, a roll these past couple of weeks, even before the Roe v. Wade case was overturned. They passed a pretty big case to striking down a, a gun control law in New York as unconstitutional. Uh, and then uh, an EPA law uh, where the EPA was trying to like unconstitutionally regulate uh, th things that Congress hadn't regulated as unconstitutional. So uh, it's been a good week for constitutional originalists and conservatives. But, uh, but Justice Clarence Thomas, who's uh, uh, a strong silent type, he doesn't say much, but probably the most conservative justice on the bench mm. uh, did actually say something uh, this week and saying that basically said that right to privacy uh, argument that Roe v. Wade was based on was used as precedent in many other cases, including the Oberfell versus Hodge case that made same-sex marriage uh, a legal right. And so he's saying that, well, he said, if we've ruled that the um, uh, 
the right to privacy has to be uh, established by a deeply rooted cultural tradition, and that wasn't the case in Roe v. Wade, then many of the cases that Roe v. Wade was cited as precedent for are also unconstitutional, including most likely the the Oberfell versus uh, Hodge case. So, I mean, he's talking about that you could actually see that some of these other big cases about uh, same-sex marriage and um, Obamacare or other things could even be uh, could be, be overturned in the near future. Well, yeah, just some really sacrosanct tenets of leftist ideology there that could be could be on the line. Could you talk a little bit about the importance of these developments in terms of Bible prophecy and let listeners know what they could read to study into that? Yeah, well, there's definitely a strong, uh, like, prophetic moral implications of the case, just the fact that, like, both the Bible and science agree that life begins at conception, therefore the taking of an innocent human life is murder. And the fact that the United States has uh, murdered 63 million uh, unborn children in the past 50 years is uh, one of the primary sins uh, that's causing God to send so many nation-destroying curses on the United States. Uh, But more specifically, uh, our editor-in-chief talks in his new book, new and expanded book, America Under Attack, which we'll we'll put in the show notes and everyone really needs to read, uh, about uh, a prophecy in uh, Amos 7 about God temporarily uh, sparing America for those nation-destroying problems so they have a chance to repent. And he, he temporarily spares them through the, through the hand of an end-time King Jeroboam, who uh, Mr. Flurry has identified as uh, President uh, Donald J. Trump, but uh, also draws some point that they said that the uh, this end time Jeroboam, President Trump, has some significant support. Uh, he doesn't have a lot of support now, but eventually he <laughs> he's starting to get some more support. And that support primarily comes through two institutions that uh, the King James Version of the Bible calls the King's Chapel and the King's Court. Now, Mr. Fuller explains in that booklet that King's Chapel is a is a good translation. King's Court is, isn't bad, but it's probably better translated Kingdom's Court. The Kingdom's Court and those two uh, those two organizations, the King's Chapel, is just what you think it is. It's a, a religious movement, like an evangelical Christian religious movement that supports Donald Trump, and the Kingdom's Court is a a combination of the Supreme Court and some of the other executive and administrative agencies in the United States that will uh, give some support to Donald Trump. And so the Supreme Court, like pretty much since Roe v. Wade, <laughs> has been extremely liberal and, and passing all sorts of unconstitutional laws. Uh, and it's only been in the past few weeks that we've seen, uh, due to these three conservative justices that Donald Trump appointed to the court, uh, a court that's starting to roll back a lot of the liberal judicial activism there, which is a a pretty promising sign that you're going to see a court that's much more friendly to uh, to Donald Trump and the conservatives. Uh, that that book, America Under Attack, makes the point that the the King's Chapel is pretty fervently devoted to Jeroboam. Well, the the Kingdom's Court, it's they're not necessarily hardcore uh, Donald Trump partisans, but they do favor him, uh, and we're definitely seeing a, a lot of rulings that favor the uh, the Make America Great Again movement in America today. 
America Under Attack is the name of that book by Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Terrell Fleury. It is dramatically expanded from the original version, and it's up on our website, thetrumpet.com. Right now, you can also uh, pre-order your hard copy of that 200-plus page book there. And then Andrew also has an article specifically about the recent SCOTUS ruling. It's called Supreme Court Overturns Roe v. Wade. So we will include links to both of those in our show notes for today's episode. Well, thanks very much for that, Andrew. For the next segment here, we'll take a look at Europe, where some major summits have just taken place that look to be dividing the world into disparate blocks. For this, we'll go to Richard Palmer. Yeah, so on the 26th of June to the 28th of June, the G7 was meeting in the Bavarian Alps in Germany. And pretty much the same time you had the BRICS holding a summit in Beijing. And these two meetings, and then there was a subsequent one that we'll get to in just a moment, really do paint an excellent picture of the way that the, the world is dividing into these different power blocks. So you've got the G7, Uh, And this is the seven most advancing economies kind of versus the BRICS and these group of countries that are not as prosperous, uh, at least on the individual level. You know, the average individual level, individual living in those countries is is not as wealthy as someone living in Europe or America, but uh, put together, do still have a lot of wealth and a lot of power. So you have for the, the BRICS, that's Brazil, Russia, India, China. South Africa. I mean, you look at India and China alone, combine those two and you have, and you're getting kind of close to half of the world's population right there. Argentina and Iran were making headlines this week talking about how they kind of want to join the BRICS group. I don't know how you make an acronym with with them in it work as well. Uh, Birica maybe, but uh, they want to get involved as well. So you're seeing this kind of this coalescing into these two blocks. And the big item on the agenda for the G7 was how do we use our financial system and control of the financial system to punish Russia? And so they were talking about, well, a lot of countries put an embargo on Russian gold. So Russia can't uh, sell their gold and convert that into foreign currency. They were looking at how can we do something very clever to put a price cap on Russian oil? Because the, you know, the the big story of the way that these countries have responded to Russia so far is their response has made energy prices shoot sky high, which means that Russia, which sells energy, is actually bringing in more money as a result of all of their sanctions and economic pressure rather than less. Mm-hmm. So they want to try and find a way, okay, is there a way where we can ban Russian oil unless it's sold at this cheaper price or something like that in such a way that the sanctions actually hurt the country that they're meant to hurt. Doing that is not necessarily simple, so there's a lot of talk about that. And then you had the opposite side of the equation at the BRICS summit, where these countries were getting together and talking about, well, how can we uh, organize our, our financial system in a way that doesn't make us vulnerable to these kind of sanctions, in a way where we can be independent of this financial system that is largely dominated by the United States and Europe. So Russia was talking about, well, can we set up some kind of payment system that uses a basket of all of our currencies that's independent from the SWIFT interbank payment system uh, and these kind of things. But just this whole trend of these power blocks emerging and then these power blocks competing against each other in terms of economic warfare uh, is something that we've been forecasting for years and years 
that you would have this kind of economic uh, warfare or siege in biblical terminology leading into to hot warfare. Now, those power blocks themselves and who is in each power block, they're going to shift. Uh, and you can see signs of that shifting already. That's why we talk so much on this show about the fact that you look at what Germany is doing rather than they're, what they're saying. And they're not the close friend of America that they that they claim to be. They're kind of on the American camp at the moment. They're in that G7 camp. They're hosting that G7 meeting, but they're doing a lot behind the scenes to support Russia. But this this just this emergence of these different power blocks is even a power and and the, and the economic warfare really coming to the fore is a powerful fulfilled prophecy. Yeah, we can really see these uh, ideological fault lines beginning to form and these different camps emerging. And then there was also a notable NATO meeting uh, this week as well with some new participants. That's right. So immediately after the G7 summit, well, then we had this NATO summit and we had Japan attending a NATO summit for the first time ever. It was kind of set up that way. Obviously, the Japanese leader, he was over there because of the G7 summit. And then it, the, the NATO summit comes right afterwards. It makes it easy for him to, to stick around. Uh, and I think Korea was there as well, if I remember correctly. But uh, especially, though, for, for newsworthy for Japan, where this is a, a, a pacifist country. So a pacifist country attending a meeting of a military alliance, that's a, a pretty contradictory situation where Japan is on paper, not meant to have an army, not meant to involve itself in wars or anything like that, but they're attending a NATO meeting and a NATO summit. And, and so that uh, change is a, well, this is another story in Japan's, or change, step in Japan's militarization where they've been emerging as, as, a, as a kind of a normal militarily powerful country instead of this pacifist state that they are on paper. And that, I think, was one of the big stories of this NATO summit that we had immediately following the BRICS. We've had this trend. We've talked about it more from Germany. It's been very strong in Japan as well since Russia's invasion of the of Crimea. Uh, oh, sorry, of Ukraine. Both of these countries have really accelerated their military development. And that was a key theme of the NATO summits. The German chancellor was out there talking about how well Germany now is going to, he was promising that Germany would have the most powerful military force within NATO in Europe. Uh, so second only within the NATO alliance to the United States in terms of the size of their military force, a key promise there basically to overtake France, to make sure they're ahead of Britain uh, and to be the most powerful military and recommitting uh, some of theirs. In the run-up, actually, the assistant leader of the uh, Social Democratic Party, so really a colleague of the, the German chancellor, he was up uh, talking about how Germany needs to become a more normal country, not to be afraid to, to go to to go to war, to have a strong military. He was using phrases that are typically taboo in Germany. Uh, and then you saw this across other countries over the NATO summit as well, with Spain promising to spend 2% of their economy on their military, Other a big drumming up of support for other countries to spend more on their military. So again, just to kind of come back to this overview, you've got these series of summits, but you've got this world uh, developing into different power blocks, nations becoming militarized, nations that were previously pacifistic becoming militarized, uh, and nations mobilizing economic warfare. Uh, and it, this idea, this you know, hostile trading blocks with economic warfare on their way to hot war, 
that is right what, what we've been saying for, for years and years. And, and actually, one of our most popular articles over the, the last uh, six months, I've been kind of looking over some of the stats this week, is one from the May-June 2022 Trumpet print edition by Abraham Blondeau called Where Western Sanctions Against Russia Are Leading. And that's exactly on this subject, on uh, how this kind of development into hostile trading powers and economic warfare really does tie right into prophecies that we have been making for, for a great many years and just really some of the most important Bible prophecies. And you can really see end time events taking shape in very concrete ways before your eyes with these dueling power blocks. Uh, so that was where Western sanctions against Russia are leading. We will be sure to include a link to that article in our show notes for any listeners who would like to uh, better understand these these momentous trends that are gaining momentum now in the uh, biblically prophetic context there. Well, thanks very much for bringing us up to speed on that, Mr. Palmer. We just heard a little bit there about the way Russia's increasingly belligerent foreign policy is really catalyzing a lot of these big changes. And we will take a closer look now specifically at Russia's ongoing war on Ukraine and a particularly disturbing attack that the Russians carried out this week. For this, we'll go to Mihailo Zekic. Yeah, so obviously following world news can be exciting. It's exciting to follow Bible prophecy being fulfilled it can also be very tragic, and uh, this Monday on June 27th, we got a look at one of the well, more tragic uh, events happening in uh, the world. I mean, obviously, any uh, any death is a tragedy, but uh, this one is, uh, is especially uh, sad. Uh, on last Monday, uh, Russia, in its war in Ukraine, sent a few missiles to the Ukrainian city of Kremenchuk, which is uh, on the Dnieper River in the east. And its target was a shopping mall. Um, over a thousand people were inside. Estimates uh, vary as to how many are confirmed dead uh, or wounded out there. NPR suggested there's at least 20 confirmed and 59 wounded as the days go on and as maybe some of them succumb to their injuries. That number could very well cl climb. Uh, this is a, a civilian target. This is It's not even like, say, a, a factory making uniforms for uh, uh, the soldiers or any other uh, civilian operation that has some ties to the military. This is the equivalent of, um, I'm Canadian, this is the equivalent of if Canada went to war with America and America decided to drop a bomb on the West Edmonton Mall. It's uh, just people going out shopping, getting basic goods, getting luxury goods, families. It's... Uh, it's pretty sad. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said that uh, with the attack, Putin was targeting, quote, people's attempts to live a normal life, which makes the occupiers so angry, unquote. Now, with obviously, it's a bit it's hard to exactly know what Putin is thinking with these attacks or how much he's involved or whatnot. But I mean, with an attack like on a shopping mall, of all things, it's pretty clear he's just trying to cause terror. And this basically makes Russia a terrorist state. It's attacking civilian populations for political purposes. Yeah, yeah, this was just a, an utterly barbaric war crime, uh, just a deeply disturbing attack that intentionally, as you said, targeted civilians. But this actually is far from the only instance since this war began of Russia taking this kind of approach. Um, that's unfortunately true. Uh, the war has it started in February. It's only been lasting a few months, but we've already seen quite a few other atrocities happening 
uh, committed by Russia against Ukraine. Maybe this is because of mass media and technology. We're just more aware of these atrocities compared to previous wars. But I mean, at the same time, way back when, when uh, Russia was trying to besiege Kiev and they had to retreat when people came to the Kiev suburb of Bucha, there's uh, like masses and masses of dead bodies. A BBC reported that over a thousand bodies of mostly civilians were found, including 650 of the Ukrainian police uh, called or said they were killed in what they called executions. Then on March 16th, you had the uh, infamous Mariupol theater bombing where uh, hundreds of women and children were uh, hiding in the theater in the besieged city of Mariupol, far in the east, close to Ukraine's border with Russia. And the, the Russians, of course, bombed that and estimates very 300, as many 600 people, women and children mostly, were killed um, in that attack. And this goes to show, I mean, these kinds of attacks, people used to think were sent back to the dustbin of history at the end of World War II. There were a few other wars like the Balkan Wars. I saw similar attacks on civilians like this, but certainly nothing on this scale. Um, and something that's so deliberately attacking civilians that, and, and in the case of, you know, it's not like some of these places were right on the front line. Uh, and just goes to show that these kinds of atrocities, people who think that human nature is getting better and better, but, uh, and this accordance with the, with the Bible, Jeremiah 17 verse nine talks about the evils of the human heart, shows that human nature stays the same and it is e fundamentally evil even to the point of in wars like this, in just a few months so far, such horrific attacks on people not involved in the war at all, people trying to live normal lives are getting killed in. Yeah, just just tragic beyond words there. Could you uh, explain the significance of this story in the context of Bible prophecy and let the listeners know what they might read to better understand that? Sure. Well, this is a chapter we often go to talking about what Russian specifically what uh, Mr. Putin is up to. Ezekiel 38 talks about a prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Those three names are ancient names of Russia. It's dated to the end time. Our editor-in-chief, Mr. Fleury, has pointed to Vladimir Putin being the fulfillment of that role. And he's prophesied to take a much uh, more significant turn in world events. Verse 9 talks about him having power and projecting it like a storm. Uh, really uh, causing a lot of fear around the countries. And if you even look at verses 10 to 13, it talks about this is a different war than what's going on now, but talks about this Prince of Rosh going up to the land of unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them without walls, having neither bars nor gates, to take a spoil and to take a prey. Or in other words, go after civilian targets. Yeah. Uh, and there's other prophecies you could tie in, like Revelation 9, Revelation 16, that talks about this man uh, leading a 200 million man army and causing a lot of carnage. But for the most part, we're starting to see him show this basic disregard for life and for civilians that the Ezekiel 30 even talks about. Now for the readers to go to this, we have an article on our May, June, 2022 uh, uh, print edition called Putin's War on Russia. It's talking about comparisons that some of the actions Putin is taking and has taken with the infamous Russian dictator, Joseph Stalin. Our editor-in-chief, Mr. Fleury, has compared Putin to Stalin before, years ago, before all this happened. That might have sounded a bit extreme to some people. Stalin is guilty of the deaths of tens of millions of people. But you look at what Putin's doing in places like Kremenchuk, and you're seeing that he obviously has the same 
uh, value to human life that Stalin had. And we're starting to see some of those atrocities uh, start to occur. Well, thanks very much for that, Mihailo. For this next story, we'll stay on the topic of Russia's war on Ukraine and take a look at one big development that has resulted from this war involving Turkey and a couple of Nordic nations. For this, we'll go to Joshua Taylor. Yeah, so uh, this week with the NATO summit, we had both Finland and Sweden invited to join the NATO alliance. Uh, This is big because Turkey, up until now, this week, has been absolutely against it. Uh, They've said that they were going to use their veto power to prevent their applications from being accepted or going through. And because Turkey is a full member of NATO, all of the NATO members have to agree before any new member can be added. So uh, up until this point, uh, everyone else was very much, yeah, we're going to let Finland and Sweden join because they're right up against the border of Russia and are rightly fearing for their safety at this point. But up until now, Turkey's been against it. And um, But on Tuesday, they held about three hours worth of talks between Sweden, Finland, and Turkey, and the uh, NATO Secretary General, Jens Stoltenberg. And they did finally come to an agreement that some say everyone that everyone was happy with, but others say uh, no side was happy with. But Turkey did agree to allow them to join and then on Wednesday, when the they were fully, uh, sorry, formally invited to join NATO, uh, that doesn't mean they're going to be accepted right into NATO right away. But what it does mean is that they can now start that process. And it can take up to a year because all the different parliaments of all the different nations have to ratify that. But uh, Stoltenberg said that with the war going on in Ukraine right now, uh, it's kind of adding some extra urgency. So he actually expects the proceedings to go fairly quickly. Yeah, this is just a uh, a major development. You know, Sweden and Finland had both been officially neutral for decades, but now they're they're just so terrified of Russia's war on Ukraine that they're jettisoning that neutrality and trying to to join this uh, military bloc. Um, how much do we know about what exactly changed from the Nordic nations or the United States or others that prompted Turkey to finally drop its its opposition to their joining? So the big reason why Turkey was uh, opposed, at least uh, publicly, their joining was specifically because uh, both Finland and Sweden have some fairly uh, large Kurdish uh, communities within their nations. So not only have they been neutral in terms of NATO, they've also been very neutral on this uh, the Kurdish question, which for Turkey is big because uh, Turkey's got also a very large uh, Turkish community. That's where they're, they're, they live. And for a long time now, the Kurds have been trying to uh, have their get their own independent nation. So, and of course, Turkey sees this as a threat to their national security. So, up until now, uh, Finland and Sweden have kind of been either staying out of it or even supporting them. So, this, of course, angered Turkey. Turkey want and Turkey want that to kind of end. So, uh, from Sweden and from Finland, they had to basically agree to three main concessions. They had to promise not to support the any Kurdish group that uh, Turkey considers terrorist organizations. Uh, second, they had to agree to address Turkey's outstanding extradition requests for several people living in their nations that, again, they Turkey deems as terrorists. And then the third big concession is that they had to promise to lift an arms embargo that they had imposed on Turkey since 2009. Um, it is important to note that Finland and Sweden said that any extraditions would be done according to EU law and they would not extradite any of their own citizens for this. Uh, as for the United States, they did help facilitate these talks. So 
Some analysts were speculating that maybe uh, they offer Turkey some new F-16 uh, fighter jets, but senior administ uh, administration officials said that they didn't offer concessions, but uh, that's yet to be seen. Right. Uh, what would you say is the importance of this in the context of Bible prophecy? Uh, the big thing is that this ties into the Psalm 83 alliance, as we call it, in Bible prophecy. Basically, it's an alliance between a German-led Europe and most of the moderate Arab states in the Middle East. And one of those nations listed in the Psalm 83 is Edom, which is the name, the biblical name for Turkey. So in the past, Turkey has been really on the fence in regards to like the power struggle and the power blocks of the world, you know, East versus West. And in, at times has even sided with and even purchased weapons and stuff from Russia. So they're kind of been playing the fence. But with this, what they are very clearly stepping on, um, on Russia's toes in this one because they don't, uh, Russia obviously doesn't want Finland and Sweden to join uh, NATO. So this is for sure gonna hurt its relations with Russia. So uh, Turkey's very clearly siding with Europe as we, uh, and we can kind of start to see that alliance starting to show up as Turkey is clearly moving more towards Europe. And it's also with this getting some pretty nice concessions for its troubles. We will include a link in our show notes for today's episode to a booklet called The King of the South. This booklet by Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry goes through the Psalm 83 passage that Josh was just discussing there. It goes through that in great detail. Well, thanks very much for that, Josh. We will take a short break now. And when we come back, we'll talk about a grim cultural clash in Oslo, Belarus's plan for nuclear weapons, a new NATO in the Middle East, and some Texas Republicans who are echoing President President Trump. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. One of the major trends the Trumpet has been watching for is a clash of civilizations between Islam and European Christendom, a final crusade that will happen between these two sides. And in Norway's capital city, we just got a glimpse of the sort of tensions that are building up to this massive clash. To tell us about this, we'll go back to Richard Palmer. Yes, a, a gunman of Iranian descent killed two and wounded 21 in front of a homosexual nightclub in Oslo. Uh, this is something that is being treated as a terrorist attack. Uh, it was called, uh, I guess the nightclub was called the London Pub, but it, it was in, in Oslo. Uh, and then it, this led to Oslo cancelling their uh, pride parade. So I guess something good came out of that. Uh, but you have this it's part, I think the best way to view it is part of exactly as you set it up, this trend of a, a clash of civilizations building between this, uh, between the Middle East and between Europe, where you've got, uh, 30%, almost a third of Oslo's population being immigrants and being born to immigrants, uh, including this attacker. Uh, he's an individual with a, with a long criminal record. Uh, but it's something that th th this tension is leading to an increasing amount of violence within this, within Europe or, or within certainly Sweden. You, you're seeing um, a whole lot of similar problems. Uh, and even within um, within Norway itself, you had 2019, you had a, a 
you kind of having well you're also seeing the far right kind of react as well where you had a, a the 2011 the very famous terrorist attack where a far right extremist killed 77 and then in 2019 a gunman uh, opening fire near a mosque in, in oslo so uh a lot of these kind of uh, events building to this this clash within within europe yeah norway has you know just built a reputation over the years as this bastion of immigrants and a place that welcomes people from all over the Middle East and elsewhere, but uh, you know, crimes like this show us that that whole multicultural experiment is is just failing. Uh, what would you say is the big picture importance of this development, and what could the listeners read if they'd like to better grasp that? Well, we have a trends article that uh, is called you know, "Why the Trumpet Watches Iran and Europe Heading for a Clash of Civilizations," that really does put it in this overall uh, perspective. But the Bible has, you know, it gives us a whole picture of Europe becoming more religious, more uh, and more Christian. Uh, it talks about a religious power rising in Europe, and then it talks about it clashing with uh, a king of the south that it talks about in Daniel chapter eleven. And as Mr. Flory shows in his booklet, the King of the South, you know, this is referring to radical Islam led by Iran. So you see this this clash that we've seen a great many times before between these two different religions building. And Norway is not the only place where you're seeing this kind of trend. You know, we, 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 I mentioned Sweden, where they have a similar reputation as, as being a haven for migrants, or they did, and that's completely fallen to pieces now as they have problems like hand grenades being thrown around in the streets as rival gang, gangs uh, of migrants fight each other, uh, uh, a far-right backlash or a non-mainstream backlash uh, leading to some big political problems. France is, uh, we've just seen a great example of that over the last few weeks and how this kind of clash of civilizations is really shaping Europe, where France has had the, this, um, some of the French cities like Marseille have huge percentages of Muslims living in them. And they've had some pretty big terrorist attacks like the Bataclan attack. Uh, in Paris. And the response to this has been an increasing number of laws that crack down on religious symbols that prohibit Muslim women from wearing headscarves that then get the government much more involved in education where uh, preachers have to be licensed by the government. And if children are going to receive any kind of religious education, the government has to be much more involved in that. Uh, it leads to politicians almost competing with each other on who can be the most extreme in coming up with new measures that uh, that crack down on at least very public symbols uh, of Islam. And then it's led to the situation where in the French election that we talked about just a couple of weeks ago, uh, where the extremes and the fringes from both sides do very well because people think they need some extreme changes to, to the way that they're... Uh, their life is going. And then that leads to political paralysis because the mainstream and the fringes can't get along. Uh, and all the while in France, you're seeing a country that has been historically secular, taking increasingly important steps uh, to embrace Christianity and especially Catholicism. So you, you see this clash of civilization shaping France in quite a profound way and in quite a detailed way and reaching into all of these different places that, that you wouldn't necessarily think. So, you know, it's happening in Norway, it's happening in Sweden, it's happening in France, it's happening in Germany, all across Europe. You see the clash of civilizations already having very tangible impacts 
on world news. And that trans article that we have, why the trumpet watches Iran and Europe heading for a clash of civilizations, will take you through and show you what the Bible says about these this clash of civilizations, uh, why we've been expecting it, where it's prophesied in the Bible, uh, and where it's leading. We will include a link to that in the show notes. And then we also have an article called Culture Clash in Oslo. It's by Josue Michels, and it goes through this uh, this recent story in, in more detail there. So we'll link to that as well. And thanks very much for that, Mr. Palmer. We'll take a look now at Belarus, which has really become a de facto state of Russia in the last couple of years. And now the Russians are moving some of their most advanced and lethal weaponry into the country. To tell us about this, we'll go once again to Mihailo. Yeah, so on the 25th of June, last Saturday, Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko had a uh, conference with uh, Vladimir Putin in St. Petersburg, and they discussed, or rather Putin announced, that he'll be sending the Iskander-M missile system to Belarus. Here's a quote from Putin. In the coming months, we will supply Belarus with Iskander-M tactical missile systems, which, as it is known, can use both ballistic and cruise missiles, both in the standard and nuclear modifications. Now, again, this is a system that's designed for either conventional or nuclear weapons. And here's Putin basically telling to the world, yeah, we're sending a system that can potentially hold nukes or not over to Belarus. And Belarus, as you mentioned, is now more or less a Russian puppet state. But Lukashenko's regime is a bit notorious for very unpredictable and seemingly irrational actions. He famously started ferrying uh, or flying uh, Middle Eastern migrants from places like Iraq to send over the border to Poland just to cause problems with Europe. So you have this crazy guy that's a puppet of Russia who may or may not have nuclear weapons. Lukashenko apparently said he asked for this himself in response to alleged uh, nuclear armed flights from NATO members. Uh, this was obviously, um, so far the war in Ukraine has been localized to uh, Ukraine. People are wondering whether or not Belarus will get involved. But if it does, it certainly uh, might uh, expand into a wider, potentially even nuclear conflict. Wow. Yeah. So the uh, the Iskander-M, it's actually categorized as a short-range missile. Uh, what would you say is the significance of this particular model of missile being deployed to Belarus? Yeah. So short-range, as far as missiles are concerned, it means 1,000 kilometers or less or about 620 miles. These are not ICBMs. These are not uh, the giant uh, missiles meant to start World War III between Russia and America, like with Moscow and Washington lo- launching them at each other. If that was the case... It actually wouldn't be too much different than the status quo now. I mean, those missiles can cross continents anyway. But um, with a short range, these, these obviously can't make it to America. They can't even make it to uh, France or Britain, which are Europe's or Western Europe's two other major nuclear powers. So this is suggesting one of a couple of things. Obviously, countries like Poland and the Baltic states, which directly border Belarus, they've been actively supporting Ukraine and antagonizing Russia. Some people are suspecting that maybe this is Putin's way of getting nukes right on the doorstep to bomb Warsaw or Polish troops or some of these other countries which don't have nuclear weapons of their own. But the other interesting thing is there is one nuclear country that it, within NATO that fits really comfortably depending on where the missiles will be stationed within the range. 
and that would be Germany. Mm. Um, depending, again, where the missiles are stationed, uh, some of these missiles, if they're carrying nuclear warheads, could comfortably reach German cities like Berlin or Dresden or even Hanover, which is a bit further in the West. Germany the, technically, officially doesn't have its own nuclear weapons, but it does station American nuclear weapons on its soil that uh, it has joint control over of. And if Lukashenko is saying that he asked for these weapons in response to NATO nuclear forays, the only NATO member state with nuclear weapons that fits comfortably in the range is Germany. And I'm sure Putin knows this, that like if nuclear World War III would be to break out, those nuclear missiles in Germany would probably be some of the first to make their way towards Moscow. And so who knows, this could be Putin getting ready for a preemptive strike against Germany if something like that were to happen. Yeah, so the Germans are are sure to be uh, taking note of this. What can you tell us about this in terms of its prophetic relevance? Yeah, so obviously the rise of uh, Germany is something the trumpet watches very intently. And we uh, you can look at prophecies like Isaiah 10, Revelation 17, putting those together and with other ones to talk about uh, Assyria, the ancestors of the Germans being prophesied to rise up and uh, start one more world empire just before Christ Christ returns and cause a lot of havoc on the world. And you could tie that in with another prophecy in Daniel 8, which is the main one I want to focus on, uh, which talks about a, in verse 23, a king of fierce countenance or a strong man rising up and taking hold of this power. Now our, now our editor-in-chief, Mr. Fleury, has pointed often to a, an aggressive Russia being one of the catalysts for this strong man to rise. Uh, he's pointed uh, repeatedly again to the, the prince of, of Rosh, Vladimir Putin, as being a, a terror to Europe, being somebody that scares them into becoming more militarized, wanting to uh, find somebody, some leader that's strong enough to match Putin. Uh, currently, Olaf Scholz, the German chancellor, is plenty of evidence to suggest he has some sort of deal with Putin in the Ukraine crisis. But as far as the German public is concerned, uh, he's showing himself really weak. He's uh, not standing up to Putin. He's not helping Ukraine out. He's even getting in the way of some uh, other NATO members helping Ukraine out. And when you have things like the nuclear missiles being stationed potentially in Belarus, this is going to make a lot of people nervous and a lot of people to try and find their uh, their own uh, uh, strong man to be able to face up Putin. In verse 23, it talks about uh, this king understanding dark sentences. Some translations render that riddles somebody that knows the political scene that can uh, understand things others don't and in daniel 11 verse 44 it even talks about tidings of the east and north troubling him east and north of germany which would be russia so again this is prophesied to for a man to rise up and indirectly challenging russia later it's a strong man that would be able to solve these problems for germany and for our listeners I point to uh, our editor-in-chief's booklet, A Strong German Leader is Imminent. It was written a few uh, years ago, back before the war happened, but it was in response to Germany's uh, response to the Crimean crisis when Russia annexed the Crimean Peninsula. The opening chapter talks about uh, Angela Merkel and comparing her to Neville Chamberlain, and that was before this war started. And ever since then, you can make the comparison even more stronger with Olaf Scholz and how this is fueling some decisive leadership or desire for decisive leadership in Berlin. A strong German leader is imminent. 
is the name of that booklet. And then Mihailo also has an article up on thetrumpet.com right now. It's called A Nuclear Belarus with its Sights on Germany. So please check both of those out for more information on this development. Thanks very much for that, Mihailo. We'll take a look now at the Middle East, where there is talk of building a NATO-like security alliance of some like-minded countries. For this, we'll turn it over once again to Joshua. Yeah, so uh, this week, the Jordan, uh, Jordanian king, uh, King Abdullah II, was interviewed by CNBC and had some pretty interesting comments in regards to this. He was asked uh, whether the world needed such an alliance. Specifically, he was asked the, that exact wording, a NATO for the Middle East. And he said that I would be the first person that would endorse a Middle East NATO, in quote. So even a few years ago, such an, an idea, such an alliance would be pretty laughable because up since World War II, the Middle East has been arguably the most divided, contentious, and war-torn region in the world. Uh, and honestly, the only thing that's seem, seemingly united the Middle East, especially military, militarily, has been Israel. And considering the fierce hatred that many Muslims still have for that the state of Israel, you would assume that such an alliance would be basically the Middle East versus Israel. But that's not the case. What's happening instead, actually, is that rather than uniting against Israel, everyone, uh, all those Arab nations seem to be uniting with Israel. And there's been quite a few news stories uh, that this week to, that show that, uh, most of them focusing around uh, joint discussions on joint air defenses. Uh, there was one in Bahrain. Uh, last March, there was one. Um, as well, that the U.S. held secretly with a few Arab nations, including Saudi Arabia. And then even recently, Israel's relationship with Turkey has been warming very steadily to the point where they're just about to normalize their relations. And this all comes as a ba the backdrop to potentially historic talks uh, next month involving Israel, Saudi Arabia, and America that might even potentially bridge the gap between Saudi Arabia and Israel, which would be amazing, well, interesting, because... They have never had uh, diplomatic relations. Yeah, really fascinating to see so many of these uh, nations, you know, burying the hatchet with Israel and, and beginning to form uh, close partnerships with it. Could you place this in the context of uh, Bible prophecy for us? Absolutely. So the main reason why they're coming together like this and burying the hatchet is specifically because of a great threat. NATO is, we as we talked about, is a collective defense agreement. It's a military agreement. You have the only reason you form any kind of alliance like this is because of a great threat. And right now, that great threat is Iran, or as we call it in Bible prophecy, the king of the south. And they have a very pushy foreign policy that you can see in Daniel chapter 11, verse 40, that talks about them pushing and pushing. And they're pushing against not, not only their neighbors, but as the, the prophecy talks about, uh, against the king of the north, which in Bible prophecy is a German-led Europe. Uh, so that would be like a NATO alliance. And that ties into Psalm 83, which, again, we, we talked about earlier, where you have Germany uniting with these all these Arab nations that are a part of a part of these agreements going on. And you can see that those two power blocks forming because of Iran's uh, pushy nature. We will include a link in our show notes for today's episode to an article called Why the Trumpet Watches an Alliance Between Arab Nations and Europe. Uh, this article goes through everything that we were that Joshua was just discussing there. And then we'll also link to his new article called Is a Middle East NATO Coming? Well, thank you very much for that, Joshua. For our final story of the show today, we'll look at the Texas 
Republican Party and their view of the 2020 presidential election. For this, we'll go back to Andrew. Yeah, this is quite a quite a shocking story where um, finally, after about 17 months of the Biden administration, we're starting to get some official recognition that the 2020 presidential election was stolen. Now, at the um, the uh, annual caucus of the Texas Republican Party, they released a new party platform, like political parties usually do. But before they released their platform, uh, they watched Dinesh D'Souza's documentary, 2,000 Mules, about how at least 2,000 uh, ballot criminals uh, visited 10 or more uh, election boxes. Actually, I think it's five or more election boxes. Uh, and stuffed them with at least five million illegal ballots, enough enough illegal ballots to steal the election from Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And uh, they found the documentary so convincing that when they released their platform, they included the following statement. We believe that the 2020 election violated Article 1 and Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution, that various secretaries of state illegally circumvented their state legislators in conducting their elections in multiple ways, including by allowing ballots to be received after November 3, 2020. We further believe that substantial election fraud is in key metropolitan areas significantly affected the results in five states in favor of Joseph Robinette Biden, Jr., we reject the certification of the 2020 presidential election, and we hold that acting president Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. was not legitimately elected by the people of the United States. Uh, and then a little later on, they, they did another very traditionally Texas thing and uh, reaffirmed that Texas still does have the right to secede from the United States if, uh, if necessary. And so this is the, uh, the Texas is the biggest Republican state in the union. Uh, and obviously, since it's a Republican state, the Republican Party is the biggest political party in Texas. So you've got the biggest political party and the biggest conservative state in America, who's basically officially declared that America is living under an illegitimate president. And so that's pretty courageous stand to take. We'll probably uh, encourage some other Republican parties in some other states uh, to follow suit as well. And um, it'll be really interesting to see where that leads. Uh, now, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton basically made that same argument in December of 2020, uh, filing a lawsuit with the Supreme Court that the secretaries of state illegally altered the mail-in ballot election laws before the election. Now, the Supreme Court threw out the case, so it was never, the evidence was never examined. Uh, but with the increasing evidence, and if we can get some more states to follow Texas's lead, it's possible the Supreme Court could revisit that case. Or if they don't, it's possible that uh, if the elections continue to be rigged, um, Texas and some other states may just secede and uh, and establish a new nation that has free and fair elections. Andrew, you uh, you wrote an article about this. It's up on the trumpet.com right now called Texas Republicans Declare Joe Biden's Election Win Illegitimate. Could you talk just briefly about some of the points you made in the uh, conclusion of that article about really the big picture of these developments? Yeah, well, we, we put in a, a block quote in there from uh, Mr. Gerald Fleur's article, What Will Happen After Trump Regains Power, where uh, he um, even says in that block quote that uh, the scriptural indication that Trump being an end-time type of Jeroboam uh, will return to power said, but, quote, 
He will have to fight for it. It doesn't have to be military action, but it certainly could. President Trump could also lead some states to secede from the Union. And so you you do get kind of both options in play here, whether um, something like this could be a domino that would result in a Supreme Court case or some other measures that would uh, uh, allow President Trump to prove to the nation that the election was stolen, or if you can only prove to half the nation, or if only half the nation accepts that, uh, you could even see a, a schism of the states. Uh, but all that's based on the um, uh, the prophecies in Second Kings fourteen twenty six through twenty eight that talks about God saving Israel by the hand of Jeroboam, and talking about how Jeroboam has to war uh, to recover. So that's not that's not typically the type of language you hear about an election, but more the language you hear about a conflict. And um, as I made, as the point I made in the first half, that new and significantly expanded version of America under attack will give our readers uh, more details about those prophecies. You can find a link to Andrew's article, Texas Republicans Declare Joe Biden's Election When Illegitimate, in our show notes for today's episode. And you'll see links there to all of the various books and articles that we've mentioned today. That's on thetrumpet.com. Well, we are now coming to the end of Trumpet Hour. Please email any questions or comments you may have about today's episode to letters at thetrumpet.com. And thanks very much to our panel, Andrew Miller, Joshua Taylor, Mr. Richard Palmer, and Mihailo Zekic. Thanks very much to Parker Campbell for engineering and production. And as we head into the 4th of July weekend, we'll leave you with the words of American founding father and our second president, John Adams. Independence Day ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other, from this time forward forevermore. You'll think me transported with enthusiasm, but I am not. I'm well aware of the toil and blood and treasure that it'll cost to maintain this declaration and support and defend these states. Yet, through all the gloom, I can see the rays of ravishing light and glory. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.